the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. It appears the Canadian immigration system is unable to handle the large influx of irregular migrants that began to come to Canada in 2017. According to the Auditor General's spring report released earlier this week, there is also a general lack of information sharing. While government employees use outdated technology to process asylum claims, which slows down the process. The report also warns if current funding and procedures continue, wait times for asylum applications could more than double by 2024. That would see applicants wait up to five years for a decision. And here's a challenge most of us can relate to. The report found that 8 million Canadians tried to call and speak with federal officials to get information, but out of a total of 16 million people, half were not able to speak with anyone who could give assistance. Libby Snymer went to CARP's Chief Public Policy Officer Laura Tamblin-Watts, an immigration lawyer Giddy Mammon for analysis on the report. What's basically happened is in uh, when when uh, the Liberal government was uh, uh, was elected, uh, there was an inclination to welcome everyone to Canada who seemed to be displaced, and no surprise, we went from about twenty twenty four thousand claimants a year. Last year we had fifty five thousand, and this year I have no doubt it'll be even more. Um, the problem is that they don't allocate more resources. They don't go out and hire more judges. They don't build more hearing rooms. They don't hire more hearing officers. So the inevitable is going to happen. A two, you know, a one-year process is going to become a two-year process, and a two-year process is going to become a five-year process. And that's what we're witnessing right now. Laura Tamblin-Watts, Chief Public Policy Officer for CARP. How does that affect your members, people in an older demographic? We know it's a real challenge for people to actually talk to somebody on the phone, particularly for older adults, and really for anyone who's got a question or a problem. You know, 15 emails back and forth is often unhelpful anyway. And for many older people who may not be quite as au fait with modern technology, it's especially difficult. How much easier it is to get somebody on the phone with some kind of authority to help walk you through the problem and fix the problem. But we know that's not what's happening. Eight million. Does that number surprise you? It's high, but it doesn't especially surprise me. I'm glad to see that they are doing this kind of a report because there are standards for which callbacks and response rates are supposed to be met. And so while eight million is a high number, I can't say I know anyone who would be shocked to hear it. There are basically three different agencies that are dealing with immigration, and they all have their own data collection system. And often... Uh, an immigrant can be dealing with all three of those things, and it's very easy to fall through the cracks. So, for example, let's suppose you have somebody who comes to Canada who makes a refugee claim, and somewhere during the process, uh, he gets married. So the Immigration and Refugee Board is going to consider the refugee hearing. Uh, it, the Immigration Department, CIC, uh, is going to deal with the sponsorship. And if he has to be removed from Canada... It's going to be the CBSA who deals with that 
uh, removal. There is no one agency that has all of the information, and often they work in a counterproductive way. So one is trying to finalize the sponsorship, let's say, the spousal sponsorship, while the other agency is in the middle of booking a flight for him to go home. So it's it's crazy. And then, uh, for example, when that refugee claim uh, that refugee claimant may be giving a change of address, he sends his change of address, for example, to the immigration department, uh, not realizing that he also needs to give a change of address uh, to the immigration refugee board and possibly to the CBSA. And what happens when the when the CBSA or the IRB does not get the proper change of address? somebody may go out and arrest him because he hasn't properly given uh, a change of address. He says, but I gave it, but it was to the wrong agency or only one of the two or three agencies that he was required uh, to deliver that change of address. So it causes unnecessary costs, uh, detention. Uh, We lose hearing room days. Uh, it's just unbelievable that they don't at least all contribute to the same database of information. They all have their own individual uh, databases. We need technology to be up-to-date. Information needs to be shared, but we still need to make sure that older people get personalized service. That was CARP's Chief Public Policy Officer, Laura Tamblam-Watts, and immigration lawyer, Giddy Mammon. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On Wednesday, Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou was back in a British Columbia courtroom as the case for her extradition to the U.S. moved forward. Two Canadians are still detained in China in what experts describe as retaliation for the Meng Wanzhou arrest. And two of the roughly 200 Canadians incarcerated in China now face the death penalty. As well, Beijing is banning shipments of canola from two major Canadian canola exports along with exports of soybeans, peas and pork that have all faced obstacles when entering China since the arrest of the Huawei executive. On Wednesday, the Globe and Mail reported that Canadian leaders were unable to contact Chinese decision makers for discussions on these topics. Libby spoke with Hugh Stevens, Distinguished Fellow at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada and the Vice Chair of the Canadian Committee on Pacific Economic Cooperation to get his insight. Certainly, China has tightened the pressure, and frankly, I expect after today's hearing, in which uh, you, you know the uh, the process for the extradition will be further clarified, China will probably uh, resort to some new measures. They've got uh, a number of things that they can still do, and I fear the worst. Okay, I, I don't want to give them any ideas, but like what? <laughs> Well, you know, the, 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 the canola is the big hit, but uh, <clears throat> there's been issues with exports of other commodities, um, uh, paperwork on pork exports and so forth. So they have an infinite variety of ways to make life difficult. And, uh, you know, the government's been trying to deal with the canola issue, first of all, on the domestic front by providing some support to canola growers, but also by challenging the Chinese and getting them to come forward and actually prove, uh, you know, what scientific basis they have for this ban, we've been stonewalled. That's probably because they don't have the proof and because the longer they can drag out the misery, the more, in their view, uh, uh, pressure and leverage they're exerting on Canada. Is Canada going to take them to the World Trade Organization? I would fully expect so. I'm surprised we haven't actually launched a case yet. 
there was a, quite a strong statement by the Canadian ambassador to the WTO yesterday calling upon China to come forth with uh, scientific evidence um, as part of this particular dispute, but also as a way of resolving all these kinds of technical issues, these phytosanitary issues. Um, so it, it may be that there's still some, uh, some final details that are required, but I fully expect that Canada will file a WTO case. That will have a symbolic value. It will bring some pressure on China. Of course, uh, it's not going to lead to any quick resolution. Uh, do we just look like uh, we're just twisting in the wind? They won't even take our calls. It's very difficult. Um, and, you know, you, your reader, your, your listeners may have noticed there have been some calls in op-eds and others by a number of people saying, well, you know, Canada should start striking back. And uh, a variety of ideas have been put forward, probably some more uh, useful, more realistic than others. Uh, there's an understandable desire, I think, to, to push back. It's becoming politicized. Uh, Mr. Shear's uh, statements yesterday criticized the government for not you know, doing enough to push back on China. So I would think, frankly, even from a political cover point of view, the government needs to be demonstrating that it is uh, you know, not just doing nothing. And of course, it's not doing nothing, but we aren't, we aren't seeing sort of physical and visible signs of, of, of pushback. That said, any pushback has to take account of the realities of the economic relationship between a very large country and a smaller country. I think that uh, the next uh, few days will give us clarity as to whether China and the U.S. have been able to reach some kind of accommodation. We will then find out very quickly whether uh, there is a, there's a Huawei component to that in terms of, of Meng Wanzhou. If they do reach a deal and if there isn't any resolution, then I think uh, Canada has to start playing to the extent that we can. A hardball or sending some very tough messages to the U.S. And Canada also has to start thinking about how it can send a, a signal to China that it's not all a one-way street in terms of uh, leveraging pressure. That was Hugh Stevens, Distinguished Fellow at the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. The war of words between city and provincial politicians seems to be steadily escalating. Toronto Mayor John Tory continues to voice his concerns about Premier Doug Ford's budget cuts, but his tone is changing from the usual Mr. Nice Guy. This past week, the mayor described the latest cuts as damaging and which threatened to hurt Toronto's most vulnerable residents, as well as the economies of the city, Ontario and even Canada. The mayor also questioned the Ford PC's decision to put beer and wine in corner stores if it means an expensive penalty to break a contract with the beer store. In response, Premier Ford insulted John Tory, saying the mayor should find time to sit down with his auditor general and find some value for taxpayers' dollars instead of irresponsibly wading into provincial issues he's not involved in nor understands. Mayor Tory has actually spent a lot of time in provincial government, even as leader of the Ontario PCs for a while. Libby spoke about the escalating tensions with Councillor and Deputy Mayor Stephen Holliday, along with Mayor John Tory himself. Well, I don't think it's so much that it's escalated as that the list of the cuts that are being imposed uh, without any notice, without consultation in the vast, vast majority of cases gets longer and longer. And so I think our level of concern grows about the potential damage this can do to families and to the city, whether you're talking about child care or public health or the gas tax money that we use to refurbish transit. It's just extraordinary to me that we can have this magnitude of cuts 
with no consultation, no discussion. Okay, because I thought you were getting uh, feistier than usual. I was even thinking, huh, no more Mr. Nice Guy. Well, no, no, look, I'm a nice guy because you have to get along with other people and you have to work in partnership with other governments. But I was getting very frustrated at the fact that you had this continuous, you know, kind of stream of things that are saying, well, our numbers weren't right or we didn't understand or uh, that it was only a modest shift and we should just get over it or that, uh, you know, I was interfering by discussing provincial issues I knew nothing about. And, you know... I would just say to you, look, a cutback is a cutback. And uh, the bottom line is my obligation is to speak up, and I think I have to speak more forcefully as we find that the list gets longer, and uh, that's all I'm doing. And what I will continue to do, uh, again, continuing this afternoon when I meet with the mayor of Guelph, who represents all the other big city mayors in Ontario, all of whom uh, take objection not only to the fact they've been cut back millions of dollars in both gas tax and public health money, but also take exception to the way it was done, and they will speak for themselves. But I know they share my upset in how this has come about. It's about a process that is totally disrespectful of duly elected municipal governments who deliver a lot of these services. And if they just consulted, if they just sat down and said, we have a problem to deal with here together, I'm sure we could have found some progress uh, to be made, but uh, they didn't do that. They're sending these emails and making phone calls instead. I would be happy to sit down with them. I'd be happy to bring the books for the public health department or for the child care programs that we operate with their assistance and go through those line by line myself or to send our officials to do it uh, because I understand the need we all have to run public finances better and operate these programs more efficiently. I look forward to and think we should be working together on these things. The last person who wants to have a, a jousting match is me and you'll notice that I don't get personal about these things because I just don't think that accomplishes anything and you won't see me start to do that no matter what uh, provocation comes my way. Right now, I'd like to bring in Councillor Stephen Holliday, who is a deputy mayor. Are we in a whole new era in the relations? And uh, is this a, a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, I enjoyed listening to the mayor. You just, you just had him on. He's doing what he needs to do. He's the head of our government. And he's, uh, one of his key jobs is intergovernmental relations. And I think, you know, part of it is played out in the media and through speeches and through statements like the mayor has made. Um, I think most of council are, are on the side of, you know, we really have taken exception to the changes in the financial arrangements. These are material changes. There aren't little cuts here and there, and they aren't things that auditors have found. It's in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And the way I've described this to people is if you think about all those big fights we have around the city budget, although it's billions of dollars, we work on a knife edge, and a 1% tax hike is $25 million. So there isn't a lot of nimbleness in setting our tax policy and, and dealing with swaths of money like are being discussed right now. So they are big changes, and as the mayor has accurately said, we found out about these changes after our budget is locked in, and some of them are retroactive. And in terms of uh, refugee claimants, you know, this, the, the federal government owes us money that they are not coughing up. Yeah, I mean, that was another pressure, and that's, uh, that's found in reports in the tens of millions of dollars. We have an enormous number of people that have come to the city that have flooded the shelter system, and we're struggling to try to meet that demand. You know, at the end of the day, I don't think anyone on council wants to see anyone sleeping on the street because they couldn't find a place to go at night. And so those spaces have to be created, and part of it has to do with broader issues at the Canadian border. But again, back to Roy's point, um, you know, the sanctuary city policy was a, a free choice of the council. 
and there is a financial fallout from that. And so putting pressure at the top on the, on the financial streams that the province pays in order to, to, to try to attack those policies is an indirect thing. And I would just wish they'd call out what the problem is they have and go at it head on. City Councilor Stephen Holliday and Toronto Mayor John Tory. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Midweek, there was a surprising turn in a case that was supposed to go to trial a few weeks before the upcoming fall federal election. The prosecution decided to drop the charges of breach of trust against former Vice Admiral Mark Norman, who was accused of leaking cabinet secrets in relation to a $700 million shipbuilding deal in Quebec. It's a case that could have potentially damaged the Liberal government's fortunes because of allegations of political interference. The prosecutor and the prime minister have both insisted there was no political involvement. Libby was joined by liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations, Bob Richardson, and conservative strategist and president at Enterprise, Jason Leader, to get their perspectives. They've sort of won the lottery today. It's not a full full win for them because this is going away, but... um, you know, the irony of all of this was I do believe them that they didn't tell the DPP to ch- drop the charges because that would have been a scandal of epic proportions that would have for certain brought the prime minister down and made sure that he wasn't um, reelected this fall. Um, I believe that, um, you know, they, they did everything they could to sabotage the case. They uh, didn't give documents um, that would have either helped or hurt to make it sort of impossible to prosecute. I think this is such a complicated case. It's hard for Canadians to get their head around. I think the Liberals, the do- they've dodged a huge bullet because this thing was going to be happening during the election campaign. And that's, the, 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 the idea of this is just, it would have been very difficult for them to win or certainly win a majority government under this, the cloud of this suspicion. There's the allegations that Mr. Norman's people were making, which was that this was political intervention at the highest levels uh, of the prime minister's office, the, the chief of defense staff, um, you know, all of these things. There are documents that disappeared, meetings that were had that no documents exist coming out of. It all smelt really fishy. And finally, here we are. But I think the fundamental here is a good man, Mark Norman. His name was dragged through the mud for three years by the Trudeau government. Um, he was fired and, and sued. And they tried to put him in jail. And here today, he's exonerated. And somebody's got to pay a price for that. Bob Richardson, uh, do you agree with Jason? By and large, I do, actually. I'm a supporter of uh, Vice Admiral Norman's, donated to his fund, and I thought this was handled disgracefully. Uh, unless you have very, very, very solid evidence of wrongdoing, I don't think you go on a fishing uh, expedition uh, with uh, the senior leadership of uh, of our defense forces. Um, so uh, not a fan of necessarily how this has been uh, handled pleased that he has been exonerated. I think he is very much a good man. Uh, and there are questions that need to be answered. How, how did this, uh, how did this uh, charge get filed by the uh, uh, public prosecutions agency? Uh, was the PCO involved? Was the PMO involved? Those are all legitimate public policy questions that one point or other have to be answered. I think we can take the Prime Minister at his word to say that his office was not involved, as he did earlier today. I was happy to see him say that. And I was also happy to see that the government said that they will pay his legal fees. But this has not been a great chapter, 
and uh, it certainly uh, requires uh, some review and uh, some further answers. Bob Richardson, do you think the opposition is going to be able to spin this out into something and keep this story alive? There is no evidence um, that the prime minister is involved directly in this. And those that say that, it's completely false. Sorry, but it is. And conservatives seem to be more concerned that the trial isn't happening as opposed to being pleased that uh, the charges have been dropped against Vice Admiral Sorry, you're not getting your trial before the election, but, you know, the, the issue was dealt with by the public prosecution's unit on the PMO on this one. Okay, Jason, uh, what do you think? Um, yeah, I think they, that people won't really buy that there was nothing going on here. I mean, we we do know that the PM was briefed at every sort of stage of this and no documents. Curiously, no documents have ever come out. No one took any meetings. Nobody, nobody took any notes. None of that exists. I think Bob is right in terms of like, unless Mr. Norman, Admiral Nor- Vice Admiral Norman comes back and sues the government and makes other allegations. The question, it's all on him. You know, why is the Jody Wilson-Raybould scandal such a big scandal? Because she kept talking about it, because Jane Philpott kept talking about it, because there's new information all the time. If there's no new information on this, if we don't find out um, some damaging things about the PM and the PMO, they have dodged a huge bullet in here, and it's going to go away. If Mr. Norman comes out and sues the government for multi-million dollars for lack of, you know, for loss of his reputation, then uh, the Liberals are... Uh, they're going to be facing some serious trouble. And uh, it, it, at that point, remember, the, the one thing about Mr. Mr. Norman now is what he says goes. He is a martyr that who's, you know, who's, who's, uh, who's been, who's had his reputation dragged through the mud. His credibility goes back up and anybody who's fighting him, their stock goes down. Political strategist Jason Leader and Bob Richardson. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Ontario public health experts will launch a new research center focused on improving immunization rates and debunking unfounded fears and myths, which have been fueled by the anti-vaccine movement. It will be the first academic center of its kind in Canada, and it will focus primarily on public perception of vaccines by exploring ways to boost confidence in immunization along with vaccination rates. Family physician Dr. Iris Gorfinkel joined Libby in studio to talk about the importance of vaccines. And Dr. Natasha Crowcroft, chief science officer for this new centre, was on the phone. This has been an idea, a long time in gestation. We've been thinking about it for a long time and trying to figure out how to do it. But it really, um, it really started to crystallise about a year ago um, when we started to think about what were we going to do about vaccine hesitancy and also really recognising that there's been a gap in Ontario. There's nothing like this um, in Ontario. Other provinces do have centres, but they're not quite like what we've got in mind. I think anyone who's heard the news recently will have picked up what a growing issue this is, and we were very concerned. So I'm I'm so pleased we're now in a position where we can actually get going um, with this new centre. When it comes to education, it's not really um, so much an issue. It's not so much about educating parents. That's where people tend to go to first. We're more interested in educating healthcare providers and giving them the tools they need, um, either the healthcare providers of the future to make sure they don't leave university without everything they need to be able to um, counsel parents and patients effectively, um, but also existing healthcare providers who want updating because many of the people who are out there working in the field, when they when they qualify, when they finished all their qualifications, they're 
there wasn't really much discussed when it came to vaccines. People knew why they were important, especially older healthcare providers. So they may not have everything, all the information they need, all the tools they need to deal with this new world where people are are questioning. So that's that is one way, really focusing on education of our students at, at the University of Toronto. Um, the other thing I think we do to help convince people is do great science and communicate that effectively. And there are fantastic scientists at the University of Toronto um, doing amazing work. I get such a privilege to work with them and, and so fascinating to hear about what they're doing. Um, and we're actually we're having a symposium next week in which we're going to discuss some of this work. Um, and so if we can communicate that work more effectively so, so everyone understands just how much is going into these programs. And um, we know we're standing at a kind of a dawn of a new age for vaccines where Science is moving on, and we have new vaccines in the pipeline that are going to change, really change life for a lot of people. It's been very focused on kids, but I think going forward, we're going to have vaccines that are tailor-made for older people, for um, for people with immune problems, um, for pregnant women. You know, new ways of protecting very young babies, new ways of protecting people who've got other illnesses, and that and the science behind of all of that is developing. We've got amazing people working on infectious diseases and discovering how to combat um, these organisms using molecular methods. And we've got people working in data science who are using artificial intelligence to understand the data we're collecting. We have enormous amounts of data, and sometimes there's more than we can deal with, and, and so we're finding these new methods of, of finding patterns in the data. So there's incredible things going on, and that that's another way in which this center can really um, you know, bring the science out and show it to people and say, look at this amazing stuff. Look what we can do now. I'm going to bring in Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. She's a family physician. She's here with me in studio. What should our listeners, what should Zoomers do in terms of vaccines? Okay, yes. so let me give you the, the rundown. We want to go for the low-lying fruit first, so you make sure you get your pneumococcal vaccination. So there's two shots out there. If you can afford it, we're talking some pretty big bucks, heavy-duty money. Uh, Prevnar 13, that's probably going to set you back around $150 or so. And then eight weeks later, you're supposed to get the government-covered vaccination. So if you can't afford the first one, get the second one because it's covered by the government. If, if you're, you're over 65. Yeah. Okay. If you're over 60, or if you're high risk, your doctor may say it's worthwhile to get. If you've got chronic liver disease, chronic kidney disease, if you have an immunosuppression, then the Pneumovax 23. I, I mentioned already one dose of pertussis, the shingles vaccination, ideally the Shingrix, that's going to set you back a pretty $300 for the two doses eight weeks apart, or the government in Ontario only, unfortunately, covers Zostavax, which is a less effective If you're between the ages of 65 and 70, but I believe they will be covering the other one. I am so impressed, Libby. You really know your material. <laughs> That's right. 65 to 70, just if you're in Ontario. That was family physician Dr. Iris Gorfinkel and Dr. Natasha Crowcroft, chief science officer for a new vaccination information center. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Cheryl from Toronto phoned about the joyful news Prince Harry shared in a announcing the birth of his new son. I think with her marrying into the royal family, it sort of seems like she's constantly trying to change um, what's going on. It's an institution, 
and in, with the institution and you marry into the family, you have to accept possibly, you know, the rules and regulations. William married Kate. She followed the rules. She's an outsider. It just seems to me that Megan is very methodical and almost like trying to still be that Hollywood, trying to capture all the attention. So for me, I'm not excited. I love the royal family. I love, you know, William, Kate, but I don't think Harry and Meghan will top them. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Robin in Mono, Ontario, a former healthcare worker who shared her truth about working in this field for so many years. I'm a healthcare worker. I have been in the healthcare system for almost 33 years. People seem to think that healthcare workers are overpaid. Well, I'm going to tell you, I make under $30 an hour. I have to go to school for 36 hours every three years. If I don't get those hours in, I don't have a job. You guys, they need us. They need us in the healthcare field. I'm going to be 55 this year. I think I'm going to leave the healthcare field because this is very frustrating for us healthcare workers. We're not getting paid the money we should be. And yet we have to be educated. We have to keep up with our education. And people just don't seem to get it. You want good health? You want good workers? You have to pay us. I just got a raise. 49 cents I got this year. Wow. That was my raise. So really... We're well, not getting paid so much what people think we are. You know, Robin... And if, uh, if they're going to give us more cuts, you're going to have less and less good workers. That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Michelle Saunders, Justin Eacock, and Kelly Robotham. 